with reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of Eye on Travel for this third weekend of February 2024. I hope you're having a great time wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. How about 32 degrees, 46 minutes north, 79 degrees, 55 minutes west, in one of the most charming historic towns, I call it a town, in America. We're in Charleston, South Carolina, from the beautiful Hotel Bennett. Great story to go with that. And of course, you can always reach me, peter at petergreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. So many things to talk about where we are right now. Uh, The charm of South Carolina, especially Charleston, is retained in everything in this neighborhood. Uh, and we're only about 11 miles from the, from the, from the Charleston airport. It's, uh, it's, and what we're in is a former library that was torn down and over a long period of time built as this hotel to celebrate the architecture that made this city what it is by one person. His name is Michael Bennett, and in the second hour, we're going to talk about him because what a remarkable story he has as someone born and raised here and uh, how all of this came to be. But first, let's talk about some stuff in the news. Of course, let's get it out of the way. Yes, Taylor Swift made the Super Bowl. Yes, the Chiefs won. You know, roll credits, and the guy gets the girl. And the girl gets the guy. All right, we are now done with Taylor Swift for the rest of the year. Although, I got to tell you what a great game it was. I mean, anybody who bet on that game, whether you bet for the 49ers or the Chiefs, this is one of the well I take that back I think this became the highest rated television show of all time 123 million people watch this amazing uh, I don't think they'll be able to outdo that but an amazing uh, uh, performance by both teams uh, not in the first half <laughs> but in the second half it was a nail biter that went into overtime and uh, and now we've done that story All those private jets can now leave Las Vegas and return to their normal high-flying days. Now, let's get to the most important stuff. What's going on out there? The Boeing 737, excuse me, the Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets are now almost all back in service. They've been inspected, and they're in the air. Now, what does that mean to you? What do you need to know? Well, the two airlines in the U.S. that fly the jets, uh, Alaska Airlines and United, are still saying that if you're uncomfortable knowing that you'll be flying on one of those jets, they will, without extra charge, rebook you on another flight to your destination. So that's a nice accommodation. However, I've got to put that in some perspective. That doesn't mean you're going to get there nonstop. It doesn't mean you're going to get there with one stop. You may end up doing two stops, so just be aware of that. Uh, Of course, the FAA and the Boeing story is far from over. The investigations are just getting started. And uh, we're going to have to see how Boeing changes the safety culture and how the FAA revisits its role in the first place of enacting and enforcing aviation safety. So we'll be following that story for days and weeks to come. Uh, There is some good news in airfare land. Uh, We're seeing a number of carriers lowering their airfares on domestic flights as low as $39 each way. And some airlines, the new ones like Breeze, are now announcing unbelievably different routes uh, between secondary cities with no major international or domestic hubs at reasonable prices, right? We love it. I mean, you know, Madison, Wisconsin to Los Angeles, you know, Providence, Rhode Island to Los Angeles, 
and a lot of flights right here out of with Breeze out of Charleston. It's nice to see some more competition in airports like Charleston, which, by the way, is a delightful airport. I really enjoyed it. Uh, now, moving along from that, we're seeing cruise lines now offering deals. Why? Excess capacity. You have the icon of the seas, you know, with, with thousands of passengers. That means a lot more space, not just on that ship, but in all the other new ships that are coming out. Opportunities for you to do it now and book throughout the rest of the year. They won't; th- Those fares won't stay that way for long, but they are that way right now. Of course, the bottom line is what's changed in terms of insurance and what should you buy? And, and one more thing I got to talk about, and that is, please, everybody, I get so many emails from you saying you had a problem with your cruise. And guess what the problem with the cruise was? You tried to fly to the cruise on the day that the cruise ship was leaving. That gave you no wiggle room, no buffer, no opportunity to deal with flight delays, cancellations, or weather, or all three. If you're going to take a cruise in any other city from which you happen to live, right? If the ship's leaving from New York and you live in New York, this is not for you meaning this message is not for you. But if you're flying from any other city where you don't live to, a, to, to where the ship is leaving from, go at least a day early for two reasons. One, you won't miss the ship. And two, neither will your bags. Ever think of that? You know, you, you can't play catch up once the ship leaves the port. You know, I had a crazy thing that happened to me. I learned my lesson. Many, many years ago, I was flying. And when I say many years ago, I'm talking nearly 40 years ago. I was flying from Los Angeles to London to Athens to connect with a cruise. And my, my plane was going to land in Athens at noon, and the cruise was leaving at 6 p.m. that night. Well, British Airways didn't just lose one of my bags. They lost both of them. I had no time to buy anything. Ship was leaving. I get on the ship, and they, they sent a telegram. Remember that? I know. That sounds really old. They sent a telegram to the ship saying that British Airways found one of the bags and they were putting it in our next port city was Rome. And they were putting it on the next available flight to Rome from, uh, from Athens. Well, guess what? The next available flight from Rome to Athens was a TWA flight that was hijacked to Beirut. Did my bag ever come back? Nope. It's probably still somewhere on the runway. And then, uh, the day we were coming back to London, uh, I get an email, I think it was an email, saying that they found my bag, the other bag, and they were sending it on a flight back to California. Well, they did, and they put it on a flight not knowing anything about California. Instead of Los Angeles, they they put it on a flight to Stockton, California. And guess what? Then the airline, PSA, remember them for those folks who live in California, said, oh, yeah, we found the bag in Stockton. We're putting it on the next flight to LAX. And it never showed up, and I lost two bags. But none of that would have happened had I done something really simple, not try to arrive in the departure city on the same day the ship was leaving. So there's my story there. (laughs) And when we come back, We'll talk with Maura Hogan. She's the contributing arts critic and columnist for the Post and Courier. Yep, that's one of the papers that still lives here in Charleston. She's going to have all the information 
about some of the most amazing cultural activities that makes Charleston, Charleston, not to mention the Spoleto Festival. That 17 magical days and nights that takes the city by storm with some of the most amazing cultural events you'll ever imagine. And in our second hour, Michael Bennett joins us. Great story, a great love story about this hotel. His father once shined shoes across the street during the Great Depression. And guess what? Guess what's across the street now? Michael's Hotel, appropriately named the Hotel Bennett. And we'll be back to the Hotel Bennett as Ion Travel continues from Charleston right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Hotel Bennett here in Charleston, South Carolina. Of course, you can always reach me. Just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website. You know the name. What a surprise, petergreenberg.com. But it's got our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world. And an opportunity for you to get up close and personal and give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities. And of course, right here, it's the Low Country Food Bank, founded back in 1983, so almost 41 years old. Wow, they've been serving more than 200,000 meals every year across the coast of South Carolina. You can volunteer in so many ways, including packing, sorting, and most importantly, distributing the food, which means you get to hang out with the very people who know this country and this area better than anywhere else. Uh, And of course, who better to give you the tour when you're finished helping out? If you want more information, it's easy. It's lowcountryfoodbank.org. Or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list on that global scale. My next guest, speaking of global scale, flies almost as much as I do, or he might actually argue that he flies more than I do. He's the senior reporter at the Points Guy, and we're always happy to have him back. Hello, Zach Griff. Hey, Peter. How are you doing today? I am doing just fine. I know that you, uh, you're you on the ground today, which is unusual, but I really wanted to get an update from you as we enter a new year as to where we really stand with the frequent flyer programs at the airlines because they're getting changed by the hour, it seems. Uh, A lot of the programs are getting devalued by the hour. Some of the programs have gone from being a loyalty program to essentially a privilege program, and it's no longer based on how many miles you fly or how many segments you fly or how many flights you fly, but how much money you spend. So is there any hope out there? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I think that as we start 2024 and programs keep uh, evolving, what I'm seeing and what I'm calling it is that they're no longer loyalty programs as they were designed 40 years ago when they started coming out. I call them frequent spender programs now. And I think there's there's no better example than to see what Delta just, um, just implemented with the new SkyMiles changes for this year, which received really, really severe negative backlashes. They removed mileage and segments and how many miles and how far you've flown in the calculation for earning status. Now it's, are you spending fifteen, twenty, twenty five thousand dollars $25,000 a year with Delta and its partners to earn status? 
Uh, it's a it's a move that American uh, uh, implemented a few years back, also during the pandemic. Uh, we're seeing United do things similar, and so it, it is interesting that the airlines are moving away from a model where it's how much you fly, as opposed to now how much you spend, and are you spending on their co-branded credit cards? Are you buying their upsells, their upgrades, their bag fees, their seat fees? You name it. The, the, the name of the game right now is spending. So much for loyalty. And, and I think that that's really where it, 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 there's a disconnect in my mind, where if you're a frequent spender with an airline, let's say you just did three or four trips and they were expensive or whatever, and all of a sudden you became a gold member. Does that really mean that you're a loyal traveler, right? You know, and, and the flip side is if you instead are flying on cheap fares, but you go on the same airline every single day uh, or every single week you're taking your business trip and then all of a sudden you're a gold member, that might kind of upset you when you used to be hitting top tier status, for instance, uh, on that flying regime. So what's the, you know, what's the alternative now? You know, you're talking about the big four, right? American, United, Delta, and we'll throw Southwest in. Um, you know, what choices do you have? I mean, I remember when the Delta announcement was made back in October, I think it was October of last year, two airlines immediately showed up and said, if you're a disaffected Delta customer and you have status at Delta, come to us and we'll match it. One was JetBlue and I think the other was, it might have been United. Uh, and people did that, but then again, now you have, you know, if everybody has status, nobody has status. Uh, I, I, I think I told you the story the other day. I was flying from Denver to New York on a United Airlines flight. It was an A319 or an A320. They had 12 first-class seats configured on the plane. Everything else was coach. And the 12 first-class seats were already sold, so there was no available first-class seat. But everybody had status. How many people who were the top tier, were standing by for an upgrade on a flight they were never going to get one on, it was 52 people. So at, at a certain point, what's the point? And I think that that's where the airlines are coming out and saying, we're raising the requirements, we're raising the thresholds, we're making it harder to earn status because in many ways they're not, being, they're not able to deliver on the benefits. It's kind of like the, the programs are... Are, are doing so well in a way, or were designed so easily, or you know, however you argue, um, in, in that they, they now have bloated the elite ranks such that it's very hard to deliver on the benefits. But you know, as you think about what do you do as a consumer, I think you really have two choices. One is, right, if you're going out there and traveling, their airlines, JetBlue, Alaska, even United, they've all got these, what they call status match and status challenge programs. So you can go and take the current status that you've earned with, with the airline that, that has upset you with its changes and go and match it and kind of uh, jumpstart, fast track your way to earning status with a different airline. But the other thing that I'm telling more and more people increasingly that unless you're really loyal hub captive in a place like Atlanta or maybe a place like Denver where you've got a lot of United and Southwest flights, um, in many cases, shop around. Don't necessarily just fly with one airline because you've always been loyal to them. Because if loyalty is a two-way street, and if they're not, airlines are coming out and not being loyal to you the way that you're loyal to them, 
then it, then it's an uneven relationship, and you should and you should reconsider what, what you know your, your your spend patterns in those cases. All right, but let me go back to something you just said a couple of minutes ago. You said the airlines are having a problem because they're unable to deliver uh, the, the benefits. I'm going to add to that sentence: they're unable to deliver the benefits that they promised. Yeah, no, you're right, and and it and it's and it's and it's part of it is that there are more and more savvy travelers who are out there. But another, it, it, it does just boil down to simple economics, though, because there's only a finite supply of you know first class upgrades, and more and more people are paying for those seats nowadays. And so, let's say there's one, or in your case, zero, all fully sold out on a twelve seat first class cabin. You have fifty some people. Uh, you know, maybe one is lucky that there's a no-show and then they, they, they get that seat. But otherwise, um, you know, the airlines are not, the, the cabin, the first-class cabins aren't getting that much larger. Maybe they are by three, four, five, six, seven seats. Like, that's not going to make a difference when your list to upgrade is 70 people long or when, you know, your flights are sold out months in advance because people are paying for it now. And so, unfortunately, it seems that these promised benefits it's time for the airlines to really start thinking about maybe we should walk back some of these promises and you know, adjust the programs, take that short-term hit, because ultimately it'll become a more fair program and it'll be something that's actually uh, attainable for a traveler as opposed to promising all these really exciting, teasing all these benefits that they just can't deliver. Well, it gets into a legal area too, because if you induce me to join a program based on a promise you know at the time you promise it, you can't or won't deliver. Now we're getting to an area of fraud, and and I'm be, I'm beginning to wonder whether we're there yet. Yeah, and you know, obviously, I'm no legal expert myself, and and, and having just just been a savvy traveler uh, over the years, I get upset, of course, when I'm told that I can use these upgrades, certificates, or whatnot on long haul flights, and I look for every single day for a month at a time, and I can't find any flights. Of course, that, that that frustrates me, and it certainly feels deceptive. Um, but but you know, again, that, that's why they pay the lawyers much bigger bucks than they're paying <laughs> me, Peter, to uh, to answer to answer those questions. Well, I think we've entered the brave new world of the draconian gift card because I had hundreds of what they call plus points on United, and like you, I spent an entire year trying to redeem them and could never get a flight where I wanted to go using those points or even an upgrade. And what do you think they did two and a half weeks ago? They expired them and there's no recourse. And we start the same process again where we're sitting around hoping for, you know, the train to arrive, but the train doesn't arrive. And, and that's what I'm saying is just reminding people that you don't have to, you know, wait for that train necessarily. Go out, see which airline looks better. If United's the one, okay, but... You know, there's American, there's Delta, there's Southwest, there are the lower cost carriers. You've got new startups, Breeze, Avello. There, there isn't the, you know, what, what, what worked a few years ago doesn't work today. And it's a very one-sided it equation is. where Zach, the airlines Zach, are in control. Zach, hold on to that thought for a second. We're talking to Zach Griff, the senior reporter at The Points Guy. When we come back, we're not, let, we're not letting you go yet. We're going to come back and talk about credit cards that are affiliated with mileage programs and, of course, the cash back cards. Back right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com, and we'll solve it on the air.
Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg here, back with you from the Hotel Bennett here in Charleston, South Carolina. It's one of the more delightful cities you could ever want to be in, and one of the most historic, I might add. Of course, you can always reach me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. We've been speaking to Zach Griff, the senior reporter at The Points Guy, trying to sort of deconstruct the, the various airline mileage programs to determine whether or not there's any hope for any of us to ever redeem any of our miles. But beyond that, I go back something to gra- Zach about the credit cards that I I carry in my wallet. I was one of the first people to join uh, both a, a, an American and a United program with a credit card that was linked directly and only to their mileage program because the promise was, of course, you'd get one mile for every dollar spent, in some cases bonus dollars or bonus miles. But then again, the same problem occurs that you're earning miles you can't redeem on a credit card that you're paying interest on. Now, in the last couple of months, I should take that back, in the last 18 months, so many of us have gotten solicitations from credit cards offering 70, 80, 100, 150,000 miles or points as an inducement to join those card programs that are also linked in many cases to individual airlines. And the same problem ensues. I thought I was getting smart. You tell me if I'm making the right decision. I went out instead and I got a Chase Sapphire card and I got a Capital One Venture card or Venture X card because in both of those cases, um, and oh, and I got a Discover card. So those three cards, Discover card gave me cash back. So that's a tangible asset. It's money back in my pocket. And then both this, both Chase Sapphire and Venture Capital or Capital One Venture X gave me points, allowing them to then buy me a ticket, a paid ticket, wherever I wanted to go based on the points that I earned. Is that what's happening now? Yeah, and I think that you, know, you hit on two very interesting points, right? And you know, kind of the shift over time from having one what we call the co-branded credit card. So those are the ones that are issued by a bank, but as you say, exclusively are miles with the American program or Marriott Bonvoy or something like that to a, to a world in which you have the issuers, your Chase, your Amex, your Capital One, where what they're, what we call flexible point currencies. And those are significantly more valuable in many cases because you're inflating yourself not only from devaluation, but you're protecting yourself in the sense that if you want to just redeem those points toward, as you mentioned, a flight or a hotel, you can kind of do whichever one you want. You choose whatever's available. There's no worries about is the mileage going to be available and are there going to be devaluations and all the questions and things that I hear all the time. And and, and the value is actually quite good, especially in cards like the, the Sapphire Reserve, the Chase One, the Capital One Venture X. Um, but, but I think it's also worth mentioning that for many people, this world of credit cards is, is very complex and there is value in cashback credit cards. There's also the city double cash card. I know Peter, we were talking about it a few days ago. Uh, you get 2% back cash back on everything. There's no questions asked. There's no fine print. There's none of that. So as long as you're paying your bills, you're getting 2% rebate in, in, in these days with the interest rate environment and the high yield savings accounts and things that could go a lot further uh, than the miles or the points that you rede- that you earn, that would otherwise earn with credit cards. And of course, the one caveat here that I want to suggest to everybody, and, and, and by the way, I'll give you a figure that's a little scary, but first let me suggest the caveat, and that is whether you have a cash back card or a card that just gives you points that goes out and buys you tickets, you got to pay your bill in full every month because the interest rates are so high 
on these credit cards that by the time you ever cashed in for a ticket or looked at the money you're going to get back, the money you're spending in interest will, will completely overweigh that. Right now, only 54% of Americans pay their credit card bills in full every month. So the other 46% are playing catch-up, and they can never catch up. And that is a golden rule. It's worth reemphasizing time and again that the only way you're going to beat the credit card issuers or the airlines or the hotels at this game, if you want to call it that, is just paying your credit cards on time. Don't even dip your toes in the water if you think that you're even one month of the interest with these rates. I saw the other day someone posted over 30% month monthly hit you um, you know interest that you have to pay up on on these. I mean. All it takes is one month of being late and you lose all the value from the points and benefits from the credit card. And that's and by the way, under the law, this is even scarier, Zach, banks could, if they wanted to, go up to 35% interest. Now, think about this. If I loaned you money at 35% interest, I'd go to prison. But the credit cards are able to do that, and believe me, they do. And so we're dealing right now with a consumer credit card debt in the United States of $1.4 trillion. That's all unsecured credit, and that's all ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching on interest. It's a little scary. And so many of us think it's a great idea to have one of these cards because we're going to maybe get a quote-unquote free ticket. Let me tell you what that free ticket just cost you. So please pay attention. Pay your bill in full every month. Try to get a cash back card instead of a, a card that's directly affiliated with only one airline mileage program, especially considering the redemption levels these days. And you might be better off. And of course, do what I do. Read the points guy, our good friend, Zach Griff, the senior reporter. Always happy to have you on the show, Zach. And by the way, I just want to remind you something. You get absolutely no mileage for this whatsoever. You understand? <laughs> Oh well, oh that's too bad, Peter. We'll have to, uh, I'll have to re- renegotiate with you next time before coming on the show. Oh, by the way, you get no cash back either. Zach Griff, thanks for coming on, and we'll be back with more of Island Travel from the Hotel Bennett here in Charleston, South Carolina, right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg back with you as Eye on Travel continues from the Hotel Bennett right here in Charleston, South Carolina. Of course, you can always reach me, you know the drill. You email me with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Uh, you know, when I first came to um, to Charleston, I always I always do two things whenever I go to a new city. I obviously got to check the local newspaper and I got to go visit the local fire department. I go to the local fire department because they are the enviable position of having been in everybody's house, everybody's hotel, everybody's restaurant, and everybody's everything. And of course, they also know where to eat, right? Great resource of information. But I always want to go to the city desk of the local newspaper, and that's my next guest knows all about that because she's the contributing arts critic and the columnist for the Post and Courier. It's still with us here yes, in Charleston. Is. Maura Hogan, welcome. 
It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be able to come to a city that still has a newspaper. Absolutely. And it is a beloved one that has been in a family for many, many years. Um, My own brothers used to deliver it growing up. So I used to deliver papers. Oh, did you really? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And and by the way, we used to hate Sundays. Oh, because they were so big. So big. big. Yes. (laughs) Because in the old Sunday papers, now I'm now dating myself, but in the old Sunday papers, you not only had... The papers, you had the supplements like Parade Magazine, and you That's had, correct. Oh, remember, right? And you had other magazines, and you had other supplements, and, and the advertising supplements. I mean, it weighed like six or seven it, pounds. Yes, it did. Yes. You so couldn't that, throw you, it. you must have had good biceps. Yeah, but you couldn't throw it. You had to <laughs> place it. The daily paper, you could throw. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I grew up in downtown Charleston, and they would just chuck them right onto the veranda on the second floor. But they'd make it. They would make they it. Had great, they had great aim. Yes. I know. So. But the whole point of what you do here in Charleston is really talk about the culture and about what's going on. And, and Charleston has become, uh, I mean, not recently, it's been, it's been for quite a while, a, a cultural center in America. Correct, correct. And it has been for a long time. And so I am in an enviable position because it is robust, it is vibrant, and it is storied. Um, so, and it, it really is in a sweet spot right now. Why? Um, I, you know, I can actually sort of, if I go back into a little bit of the history, I'll, this is how I, I like to frame it, that Charleston has had a series of renaissances in the arts world. One is actually called the Charleston Renaissance, which really took place um, between around 1915 to 1940, uh, when Charleston was still recovering um, and had not embraced Reconstruction all that much and was it was down and out. So... The city was looking for ways to become economically viable again and vibrant. And they really embraced the arts uh, to do so. I've seen that happen in Savannah as well. Yes, absolutely. So we had, and also it was attracting these artists from other places. Uh, such as an artist named Alfred Huddy, who came here, uh, wrote back to his wife that he had found paradise come quickly. And, uh, By the way, if you find paradise, come quickly. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and people, and, and he's not alone in, in finding that about Charleston because it has quite a bit of architectural splendor and sort of tr- subtropical appeal, so people take to it very quickly. And let's talk about that more because you talk about architectural splendor that they've been able to maintain. Yes. I yes. mean, that, that's, that is a feat in and of itself. Well, and it, you know, that it's been through phases, and that actually is a very interesting thing back to that Charleston Renaissance, because one of the key aspects of that Charleston Renaissance was the founding of a preservation society, which became a model for preservation throughout the nation. And it was very, it saved a lot of old buildings. Uh, it was run by a woman named Susan Pringle Frost, who founded it, who was also a suffragist and um, uh, formidable, and gathered artists, gathered all sorts of local stakeholders, uh, and really saved a lot of buildings. She so. landmarked them. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, and, and saved them from you know being torn down, because that's where they were headed. See, to me, Charleston is such a manageable city. Mm-hmm. You can walk it. Mm-hmm. You can actually see it. Yes. Right. I mean, you don't have to look up 80 stories. It's right in front of you. 
Correct, correct. And even though Charleston is changing and the buildings are ticking up a little bit, there's still this magnificent cityscape that you can see. But I don't see skyscrapers in Charleston. No, no, not not yet. And I, hopefully that will continue to be the way because, you know, you're always very close to rolling out into the harbor and, and getting those views. And you don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss no, that. No, you do Absolutely. not want to miss that. We're yes. talking to Maura Hogan, the contributing arts critic and columnist from the Post and Courier. Yes. Is the Sunday paper still a little heavier than the rest? Yes, the Sunday, and that is where my column has traditionally been in the life section. So it's a feature, and I write about the nexus of arts and community most Sundays. And that's what I want to talk about when we come back. What is that nexus of arts and community, not to mention theater and art galleries as well? We're talking to Maura Hogan from the Post and Courier. When we come back, more from the Hotel Bennett right here in Charleston, South Carolina, as Ion Travel returns right after this your flight might be late but we're on time ion travel will be right back you've been listening to ion travel with peter greenberg visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues from the Hotel Bennett right here in Charleston, South Carolina, talking with Maura Hogan from the Post and Courier. Maura, it's one thing to say you've, you've maintained the arts here, but is there a vibrant theater life here? Is there a vibrant music life here? Uh, and how much do you incorporate the older languages from the South here as well? Uh, well, that's a good question. Yes, there is a vibrant theater life here. There are some mainstays, um, such as Charleston Stage, which has been around since the 1970s. And they are they operate out of the Dock Street Theater, which is a historic theater in downtown Charleston. Uh, they do a, f- a full season of productions. and impo- They have an ensemble theater company which they import professional actors as long as well as folding in community members i refuse to go anywhere without a professional actor <laughs> <laughs> and they i mean they're very they the dock street theater was renovated a few years ago so they can now do elaborate flies up from this historic theater and, and they got um, risers in the stage mm-hmm, and all that stuff that's great mm-hmm. and so and then we also have many other community theaters uh, footlight players has been around longer than that i can't remember the exact date but sometime in i think in the 1930s uh and they are a community theater and they're around the street on queen street in the queen street playhouse as it's called at present uh and then there is another wonderful theater company pure theater pure theater is also downtown and they're very play-centric and they do a lot of regional premieres or South Carolina premieres as well as some original work that does bake in that Charleston voice. And then there's the gallery scene. And then there's the gallery scene. The gallery scene is, it it all kind of radiates from the Gibbs, which is the Gibbs Museum of Art, but then anywhere along Broad Street and that area fanning out all the way, you know, throughout the Charleston area, you'll find many, many commercial galleries of of all stripes of art. You know, you go to some cities, they, oh, we have an artist in residence. Here you have 
a lot of resident artists. Yes, you do. Well, I mean, they're 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 drawn by the beauty, I think, and um, you know, often there's another uh, contemporary art center called Redux, and they actually have studio spaces for arts, so that's wonderful too. So, the, and they do resident um, artist shows um, once or twice a year. So there, so there are all kinds of different levels of. Uh, arts experience, visual arts, and other and then there's music. And then there is music. I mean, and here we are in the Low Country, and there's a Low Country music. There is. There is a Low Country music. Uh, it's a, a a music that, um, if you talk about Low Country music, a lot of that I think is informed by the Gullah tradition in Charleston. Uh, so that is. Well, the explain the Gullah. The Gullah tradition um, is the Sea Island tradition. Uh, that is carried over really from the traditions of the enslaved who stayed, remained in the low country and beyond. Uh, and it has remained very much intact, whether it is music or some of their um, crafts, like uh, their seagrass, sweetgrass baskets, uh, and they also are very contemporary. And they really continue to realize a long-standing um, tradition of descendants of the enslaved, primarily. And they've been able to hand it down. They have been able to hand it down. They have been able to hand it down orally, primarily. And things like the sweet ba grass baskets from one generation to another, teaching from grandmother to grandchild. And what's the connection with the Rolling Stones? Oh, the Rolling Stones, yes. that That is an interesting one because... Uh, there is a wonderful contemporary uh, band uh, called Ranky Tanky who has infused their sound with Gullah uh, as, as, as well as other musical genres. And one of the Gullah songs, the spirituals, that they perform is the Rolling Stones' You Gotta Move, which I always think is funny because when I was a teenager would love that song and thought I was being so British or something, <laughs> loving this song, not realizing it was from right down the street. In a given day, mm -hmm. as you walk down whatever street you want to walk down here, you're going to see how many galleries, how many theaters, how many music performance opportunities, because that's so much of what Charleston is. Yes. I mean, on a given day, on most months of the year, you're going to have your selection of all of these things. There are enough theater companies. There's so much live music. There is the Charleston Music Hall, which is constantly rotating things. The Gilliard, the Charleston Gilliard Center, which is sort of the main um, theatrical venue and performing art, arts hall. Uh, they are um, where the Charleston Symphony is resident. So you can see a Masterworks, a Grand Masterworks concert. I just saw Bernstein and Marsalis there the other night, a performance of those compositions in Copeland. Uh, and then there are plenty of local musicians who are fanning out into the smaller venues um, and as well as touring. Plus a million um, uh, festivals as well, like the High Water Festival. What's the? We're in Low Country, so what's the High Water Festival? <laughs> the High Water Festival combines a lot of contemporary musicians. You know, for a full-on festival, it sells out immediately, um, right on the water, with um, you know lots of conviviality and uh, a wonderful hangout. Conviviality um, in Charleston? I'm shocked. <laughs> 
Maura Hogan, the contributing arts critic and columnist for the Post and Courier. The music that you hear means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We have a lot more coming from the Hotel Bennett right here in Charleston right after this. Thanks so much, Maura. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Eye on Travel for this uh, February weekend, 2024. Of course, uh, if you're just joining us, let me tell you where we're broadcasting from. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 32 degrees, 46 minutes north, 79 degrees, 55 minutes west. We are in Charleston, South Carolina at the Hotel Bennett. And uh, lots of stuff to be talked about there as well. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Peter at PeterGreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. As I said in the earlier part of the show, I've been coming to Charleston for almost 45 years. I first came in I actually sailed on the intercoastal waterway when I came in, and it was the most interesting juxtaposition because the, you know I'm, I was on somebody's new boat going into an old city and going slow, and it was it was a, it was an amazing tapestry which remains today. Uh, where we are, at the Hotel Bennett is right outside a plaza which used to be the Citadel, surrounded by church steeples and spires, and and and, and then the waterfront, you know, and 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 uh, it just it never changes, which is what I love about Charleston. Person who's joining us now knows a lot about that because he's born and raised here. He actually is the owner of the Hotel Bennett where we are. And what a surprise. His name is Michael Bennett. (laughs) How are you, sir? I'm very good. Nice to see you, Peter. But I mean, you are really a local kid. Yes, I'm local. I was born uh, a few blocks away. Um, Went to high school a few blocks away, the Catholic high school. Um, did you this, wear did you wear uniforms? I wore green pants and a white shirt and a green tie and a green blazer all of my life from first grade to twelfth grade. Did the ruler ever meet you behind? Yeah, they used to do that back in the day. I with bet the, they with did. the nuns and the priests. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, here you are, a block away from where you went to school, and you built this hotel. I did build this hotel. What was here before? There was a county library here that was built in 1959, kind of a postmodern style building, not very well loved. Um, it was ugly. Here. It was ugly. Yeah. So you so you bought it. I bought the library and then went through a long process to get the right to build this hotel. This is a hotel that's been around for what, five years now? We just had our fifth year anniversary. But it doesn't look five years old. It looks like it was built yesterday. You've done a great job here. Uh, but what's great about it is where it's located, because where it's located used to be no man's land. Where it's located, when I went to high school, of course, that was many years ago, uh, Peter, uh, going north of... Calhoun Street on King Street was no man's land. And we didn't really come up this neck of the woods. This is the other side of the railroad tracks. And so you took a risk for building it here. Uh, You know, I didn't see it that way. I was a local boy. I knew it was a good spot right on Marion Square, our great public square, next to the old Citadel, uh, and on King Street, the best Main Street in America. Uh, But yes, I think it was perceived to be that. All right, I'm going to give you an opportunity for a self-serving answer. What makes King Street the best Main Street in America? Well, one, it's in Charleston, South Carolina, the <laughs> finest street in Charleston, the finest uh, street uh, city in America. Um, it's a million square feet of 
primarily or a significant amount of local stores and shops. Yeah, you don't uh, see a lot of chains. You don't see a lot of chains here. In fact, this is the city that if you're a chain, you can be a great chain in any other city. There's a chance you're not going to do as good here as in other places because people want to come here for the locals. And they want to support them. They do. What's the biggest challenge in Charleston right now? I look at these as uh, I, challenges or opportunities. We do have a lot of visitors who come here now. We have 8 million visitors, and we're a relatively small city. Transportation, public transportation needs are here. Uh, and it does, uh, we do have a little bit of a, a water issue here. We're very low to sea level. Uh, and well, it is called, well they, they call it the low country for a reason. They call it the low country for a reason. And the, and the, the, the city and the mayor, the leadership of the community, is doing a good job on trying to do things to uh, help mitigate that. You, know, you mentioned you know, local, local stores. I mean, the restaurant scene here has exploded. I mean, I remember when I first came to Charleston, the definition of sautéed was deep fried. <laughs> you remember too you do I do but there was always a few good spots of course the best place to eat was just at your home that's what most Charlestonians do right we would eat home but you see that's the difference because you go to Atlanta the most underutilized kitchens in America nobody eats at home they all go out Yeah. here they eat at home yeah Yeah. We, well, we, we love our family and we love staying home and, and eating at home and we have a great restaurant next door to the hotel named Virginia's named after my uh, my mother who passed away after we opened the hotel and uh, named in her, her honor. But when you think about the development here in Charleston, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about preserving the culture and the heritage and the architecture. Yes. But what are you doing about that? Because in some cities, you know, you have height restrictions. In some cities, you have space restrictions. I'm sure yes. you have them here. Yes. Uh, what we do, and we have a, a, a board of architectural review that has to approve everything that gets built, uh, if you want to paint your door on your house, you got to go through a process of uh, determining what color you're allowed to paint it. So, in some reasons, it can be a pain in the uh, a pain in the butt for you, but it really helps preserve uh, the uniqueness and the charm of, of city uh, of the city. And Charleston really is the most charming city in America, and the reason is because of its scale and its architecture. Plus, you can walk it. It's a very walkable city. And people are genuinely friendly. If you run into Charlestonians, they're going to say hi to you on the street. I, that took me, I had to get used to that. Yes. I'm from New York. Somebody says hi to me in New York, you go, what do you want? You know, you know, I've only been to New York a few times, Peter. And are you I serious? Walk, I, are yes, you serious? I've only been twice in my life. And when I'm, you know, if you're from Charleston, you, you seldom head north. You know, you're already here, right? Why would you go anywhere <laughs> else? Um, I, I've traveled to study uh, architecture and business and, 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 and finance. But when you walk on the streets of Charleston like I do here and saying hi to people, they look at you like, like you're crazy. <laughs> okay, I'll remember that when I walk outside the hotel. Uh, when no, they look, they look at you like you're crazy when you're in New York and you're talking to everybody walking down the street. Well, well then you are crazy. You have to understand that. You know the difference. If somebody is out of their mind and they have no money, they're crazy. Yeah. If they're out of their mind and they're wealthy, they are eccentric. Uh-huh. So now, if you're walking down the streets of New York and you're talking to yourself and you're wealthy, yeah. then you're Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, what did you know about a hotel before you built the hotel? Well, I had, uh, this was not my first hotel. In, in fact, I've, um, I was a Hilton and Marriott developer for some time. Um, 
But this one is a special one. This one does not have a, a Hilton or Marriott or Four Seasons or Ritz Carlton or Waldorf flag on it. I was always uh, again. It has the, the last name was again Bennett, I believe. Bennett. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Double check. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm sure that the Waldorfs and all of these other hotel companies, Marriotts and Hiltons, they had a first hotel one time too. I know. Right. That's right. That's right. Conrad Hilton. Conrad Hilton, he started with one, and when the CEO of Hilton comes through here, he always says, oh my God, this could have been a beautiful Waldorf. <laughs> and it could have been, it and could it could have, have been. been a beautiful Ritz-Carlton, yep. uh, but I always wanted to do it for my family and name it after my mother and father. So you basically tell them the name is not available because it's a Bennett. I told them the name was not available because uh, it's named after my mother and father. I got you. This might be a good uh, time, Peter, if, if, if you'd like. Um, we had all of those brands come want to I'm going to consider. ask you to hold that segment for a second. Yes. We're talking to Michael Bennett, the owner of the Hotel Bennett here in Charleston, South Carolina. When we come back, more from the Hotel Bennett with Mr. Bennett right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Hotel Bennett here in Charleston, South Carolina. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website, petergreenberg.com, with a comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world and opportunities for you to give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities, and Charleston is no exception. Check out the Low Country Food Bank. They were founded 41 years ago right here. And they, and they actually deliver to South Carolina 200,000 meals every year. And you can help a volunteer in so many different ways. Yes, you can pack the food. Yes, you can sort the food. But you also get to deliver the food. And that's where you meet the people. And who better to give you the best tour of Charleston ever than the people you just helped? If you want more information about what you can do when you come to Charleston, just go to their website, lowcountryfoodbank.org. We've been speaking to Michael Bennett, the owner of the Hotel Bennett, and I'm back with you now. When I asked you what you knew about the hotel business, you said you'd, you'd done some development, of course, as an owner uh, for Hilton and Marriott, but the business, of course, has changed radically. We saw that during the pandemic. And hotels at one point, uh, there, were, there were thousands of hotels that were in a technical state of foreclosure during the pandemic, right? And, and, and it was so many, in fact, that the banks didn't want them, and they kept them running. And very few keys got returned, right? Um, I guess it was a good thing because then it came back. Did you expect it to come back as crazy as it did? Peter, when we opened this hotel, we were about a, a year late in opening, and we were ex excited to open. And then we opened, and about six months later, COVID hit, and we had to close down. It was a forced close down by the government. Uh, and, and, yeah, those were very, very difficult times. And it would have been hard to imagine uh, the business coming back the way it did after it having been completely closed down. Uh, so those were challenging times, but Charleston was a great market before that, and it came back very, very strong and even stronger after COVID. I would think that a lot of people moved to Charleston during the pandemic. People have always been moving to Charleston. It does appear that during the 
COVID, uh, more Northeast people, Midwest people, even You mean, you mean those people who talk to you on the street? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of those people. We have had a lot of people moving to Charleston in, uh, since, since, the, uh, since COVID. Of course, one of the bigger issues for every hotelier was staffing. Right. People just it was the great resignation and the great migration. And a lot of those people didn't come back. And we're seeing hotels even today that are calling themselves full at 70 percent because they don't have the staff to support the other 30 percent of the rooms that are actually vacant. Yeah, we, we may have avoided some of those issues, uh, Peter. Uh, and, and I think one way is we are very, very kind to our employees. We really treat our employees incredibly well. Uh, and, and I think these people um, like being here and, and, and stuck it out with us. Well, they also like living here. Yes, it's a great city to live in. When I take a look at some of the lessons from the pandemic, none of which were anticipated, right? Beware of the world of, you know, <laughs> unforeseen consequences. Uh, what was the lesson you learned? You know, I just opened this grand hotel, one of the most... Uh, most beautiful hotels in America, and I was so excited and exuberant. And within months of opening, it it it, it changed, and so it surely humbles you, uh, I, I think. And 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 yet we stuck with it, and it came back slow at first, and then came back very, very, very strong. By the summer of 2020, uh, it was coming back incredibly strong. So it tested your resiliency. Um, but we were able to marshal through it, and uh, not sure if I answered your question, but no, that's how you, it felt. No, you, you, you did, but, but I want to go a little bit beyond that. From the guest experience, I remember the best thing that happened to me about the pandemic from the guest experience, you got rid of all the ugly paper in the room, right? The tent cards, <laughs> the, the promotional materials, because what I used to do when I checked into a hotel, and this goes back to your days at Hilton too, I would, take, I would open the desk drawer and just shove all that stuff in there because who wants to look at it, right? Well, we never had those things at Hotel Bennett. Okay, fine. Yeah. But, you, but, you, but, but you know what I'm talking I about. I know what you're talking about, Peter, exactly. Yeah. So what and, and, and yeah, so in the Hilton and Marriott's, it probably eliminated some of that. Yes. Uh, eliminated all of that, yeah. yes. Uh, and then what did you do in terms of amenities in the bathrooms? I mean, right? it's interesting because you talk to the Marriott guys, and they, and they tell you that in the bathrooms now, uh, they, they wanted to put, like, permanently mounted dispensers. It was like you're in a bad college dorm gym, yeah. right? How did you adapt? Yeah, we don't do those things. We just we just. You have individual containers, it. and that's it? Yes, that's correct. And then, of course, everybody was trying to be socially responsible and, of course, environmentally responsible, right, in terms of plastics, right? Yeah. No single-use plastics. So I'm sure you've done those initiatives. Yeah, yeah, we, we try to do our best on, on all those uh, items that we can. Uh, and, and the South in general, in, in, in Charleston and South Carolina, um, we didn't stay quite as hunkered down as, as uh, other parts of the country. Uh, and, and I think in the long run, that helped us. And now, how many rooms? 180? 180 rooms. Wow. For Charleston, that's a big hotel. That's a pretty big hotel for Charleston. It's the right size for Charleston. For a luxury five-star hotel, it's just, it's just about the perfect size. When people come to Charleston for the first time, right, what's the one thing that surprises them the most? How beautiful and charming the city is and how nice the people are. They're always surprised that people in the hotel that they meet, but also Charlestonians they'll meet walking on the streets, how people talk to them, say hi to them. People they don't know will say hi to them, give them directions, 
it's really a nice town. And of course, you can still do what I did 40, God, 43 years ago. You can sail in. Yes, you can sail in. We've got one of the great ports on the, on the East Coast. Um, I, I think the second or third biggest port on, on, the, on the East Coast. We have great sailing activities, great boating activities. It really is a wonderful Although wonderful the cruise spot. ships, uh, uh, there's a carnival ship here now. They're pulling out, right? Yes, they're pulling out. Uh, a, a lot of the local uh, leadership really doesn't want to have cruise ships here. Uh, they think in, in, in ways that it takes away from the city. Um, I think the cruise ships will, will, will stay in Charleston, but they just have one a week normally. At the most, they're allowed is two a week. Yeah, you're not alone in that, by the way. A number of cities are basically either putting a moratorium on the number of ships that can be in any one port at any one time or just limiting the number that can ever come in. Yeah, I think there's just so many people who might unload at one time that it can overrun a small uh, city like ours. Well, if you go up in Alaska during the summer where you have 39 ships in the inside passage, when they all show up in, in one city with seven ships in the harbor at the same time, the infrastructure isn't just affected, it's destroyed. Yeah, it shuts it down, and, and, and our city won't allow that, and they've restricted, uh, there can only be one or two ships at any, on any given week. And I always tell people, if you're going to book a cruise, no matter where you're going in the world, assuming you're booking it with a, with a travel agent on the phone, ask them... Don't just tell me the itinerary of the ship. Tell me when the ship gets to this port, how many other ships will be in that port on that day? Mm-hmm. And if it's more than two, don't take that cruise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't have too many of those issues here. Really, this is not... Uh, it's a great commercial port town, but it's not really a uh, cruise ship port town. Will it, will it ever be, do you think? No. So you put that moratorium on. Uh, th- th- there won't be any great passenger port business in this town, just the one or two ships per week. So basically what Michael Bennett is saying is not going to happen. Not going to happen. And not by Michael Bennett, by the leadership of the community. Well, well, you're part of the leadership of the community. Well, I'm a local boy. Oh, stop that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I want you to take off your hotelier hat and your owner hat and put on your guest hat. When you walk into a hotel, not your hotel, any hotel, what's the one thing you look at and go, this hotel is not working? What's the one thing that tells you they got a problem? I, I, I like talking to the bellman and the doorman. And, and if they uh, em, embrace their job and their opportunity of greeting the, the, the customer and talking to them, talking to the customer, uh, that sets the stage for a wonderful stay. Uh, and that's really where, where it starts. Uh, and Peter, when I was 20 years old, uh, I was my only job in the hotel industry uh, before starting to build them. Uh, was as a bellman. I was a bellman and a doorman when I was 20 years old. And, and, and that's one of the critical I hope you jobs. kept a diary. <laughs> <laughs> I got a good memory of it all. <laughs> I'm sure you saw everything. Yeah. If you want to know what's going on at the hotel, you talk to the bellman and you talk to the maids. That's it. They see everything. They do. All right, but you know what you just said? It really gets down to the conversation, doesn't it? Yeah, just treat people the way you would like to be treated. It really isn't, it isn't hard, and be kind to your guest. See, uh, and one, be kind to your fellow employees, and it works pretty good. If I go to a hotel and there are kiosks in the lobby, I don't want to stay there. Yeah, yeah, we don't do any kiosks. Right, I mean, same thing with airlines. Yeah. I mean, I want to have a conversation. Yeah. and that, you'll, that, you'll have them at Hotel Bennett. Really? And you'll have them in the hotels we So have. basically tell me, after five minutes, I have to tell the bellman to shut up? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you want to personalize it and, and make that guest uh, ex- that trip uh, personal, and, and you want to talk to them. And if they're staying there for two days, you'll get to know his name. And so when he comes through the door, he'll remember your name. All right. Tell me the truth, Michael. You talked more and you got better tips, didn't you? I think you do. 
Oh, I'm talking about you. Yeah, I sure did. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Bennett, the owner of the Hotel Bennett right here in Charleston, South Carolina. Thanks for being a, a host to us, allowing us to broadcast from here. And we'll be back with more of Ion Travel right after this, and you get no tip for this. <laughs> back right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com, and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard have a travel question or comment just log on to petergreenberg.com now here's peter peter greenberg here with you as we're back as ion travel continues from the hotel bennett right here in charleston south carolina you know the drill you can always email me peter at petergreenberg.com with your name phone number question or problem we will solve it right here on the air here's an email from olive who writes uh, the airfares are ridiculous airlines nickel and dime you for everything uh, basic, main, comfort, and first class. No carry-on is allowed. $30 plus your first check-in, last to board. Yeah, okay, but, you know, this has been going on for quite a while, Olive. Okay, we'll get to your point in a second. She goes, I'm traveling with two friends in March to Puerto Rico. I've been searching for a decent airfare on almost every airline at $716. We are connecting to our cruise ship on the same day. Approximately all the cheaper flights are late, even with several stops. I've tried every search engine. Well, you probably haven't tried every search engine, but I'll tell you this, Olive, the big mistake that you're making, I said it earlier in the show, please don't plan to arrive on the same day the ship leaves. That is not good strategy. Look for fares the day before, or even two days before. Give yourself a two-day holiday in Puerto Rico. Do it nicely. Do it stress-free, right? You won't miss your flight. You won't miss your cruise, and your bags will be with you as well. That's what I would do. Now, as for the airfares, uh, there's a reason why they're high. You're going in March, right? Ever hear of spring break? Ever hear of Easter? I mean, in that whole region there, because it's kind of a sliding scale, airfares fluctuate greatly, and that's what you're a victim of right now. Uh, So my guess is you may have to grin and bear it on the airfare, but please don't. Do yourself a disservice by trying to fly on the same day that the ship departs. Not a good idea. All right, let me know what happens. Here's one from Barbara. She says, oh, it's another cruise question. I'm planning a cruise with Azamara in June, Barcelona, Spain, to Southampton, England. A second part of the plan is to leave the ship on the night before the ship arrives in Southampton and stay in the Channel Islands for a few days. Interesting idea. So here's the question. When is the best time to purchase flights from Savannah, Georgia to Barcelona and return from Southampton? Okay, well, first of all, you said you were leaving in June, but you didn't tell me when in June. If it's before June 15th, you can wait a little bit to buy those tickets. If it's not, if it's after June 15th, buy those tickets now. June 15th is that demarcation point where guess what happens? Airfares jump, kids are getting out of school, and airfares soar in the process. So be aware of that. And you won't, be, uh, you won't be penalized as bad as other people. Okay? Now, uh, here's one which is interesting. Uh, it's from Jerome. He goes, I'm planning to do the island hopper from Hawaii to Guam in May. Now, before I answer his question, let me tell you what the island hopper is, everybody. I've done it for years. I used to do it on an airline called Air Mike. 
which is a subsidiary of Continental Airlines, short for Air Micronesia, starts in Honolulu and jumps across the Pacific to Kwajalein and, and uh, in the old days, Bikini Atoll and Yap and Palau and Majuro. I mean, all these amazing islands in, in, the, in, the, in the Marianas Islands and in, and in Micronesia. And of course, the hub out there is Guam. Well, now Air Mike has been taken over or Continental was taken over by, by or merged into United, and that's the island hopper. So having said that, here's, my, here's, uh, here's Jerome's question. When should I buy tickets? This is not a domestic flight nor completely international flight. Would it be okay if I if I taking a different airline to and from Hawaii, or should I use United all the way through? Okay, my advice is use United all the way through because that's what's going to get you all the way out to Guam, right? And then if something goes wrong, you have a carrier that can actually take responsibility. But now you said, you know, when should I buy tickets? Now this is the tough part. You can still get some discount tickets between the mainland and Hawaii. But going on that island hopper, it's not an inexpensive ticket because the airline flies it knowing that people have to take that airline. It's the only way to get to those islands, right? And to give you an idea of how crazy it is, when I first landed on the island of Yap on Air Mike, I know I'm dating myself, but I landed on, the, on a coral runway and the plane had to be specially coated with tungsten on the bottom so the metal wouldn't be pitted. And because you were landing on these remote islands, there was no first class on the plane. The entire first class section was a spare parts inventory of everything on that plane and three mechanics who flew with the plane just in case anything broke. The back of the plane, the very cramped coach seating, three and three, on like a 727. And the airfare tickets, ooh, expensive. So just realize that and uh, you'll be better off. But just know what you're getting into and, uh, but you'll have a great time. And if you get to Palau, uh, you'll have an even better time. That was the headquarters of the Japanese fleet in World War II. And half of that fleet is sunk there in crystal clear waters. Some of the most interesting snorkeling and scuba diving you could ever get. It's the Rock Islands. More islands almost than people. And if you're going to go out to one of those islands, make sure you go with somebody who knows what they're talking about. Because you will get disoriented so fast no one will find you, but what an amazing experience it is to get out there. So it used to be called Air Mike. Now it's United, and it is the Island Hopper. And it's, uh, it's, it's really, truly a great way to see those islands in, in, the, in the old school way. And, you know, it, you're like with cowboys out there in the Pacific, and it's the way to do it. Hey, when we come back, we're going to talk about a museum that you probably don't know about, but you should see when you're here in Charleston. Back with more. Eye on Travel, Peter Greenberg from the Hotel Bennett, right here in Charleston, right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here. We're back as Eye on Travel continues from the Hotel Bennett right here in Charleston, South Carolina. You can always reach out to me, peter at petergreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. So get those emails coming in and we'll be happy to, to answer them. You know, when we talk about history, 
in Charleston, you're talking about all of American history because it goes back to 1670. It's been around for quite some time, one of America's oldest cities. They like to think they're the oldest city. They could be, but they're certainly one of the oldest cities. And along with that history is everybody's history. And joining me now, Brian Sheffy, the director of the Center for Family History, family history being very important, at the International African American Museum here in Charleston. Welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. Really looking forward to being here. So let's talk about this because, you know, when we talk about culture and history being handed down, right, we're talking about genealogy too. We're talking about who is related to who, who's related to who, where's the actual family tree, where does it go, and how does it essentially become the fabric of where we are right now in Charleston? Absolutely. Well, um, family history is really important. Um, Even with African Americans, even though we know that part of our history is probably going to be traumatic and painful, I always recommend that people people actually engage with it and do it. Um, If I hadn't have done genealogy, I would have never known that my own ancestry, even on my African side of the family, goes all the way back here to, goes back to Virginia and Pennsylvania in the 1600s. How long did it take you to figure that out? Ooh, we're talking about a good two decades. <laughs> really? That's really. Lots of surprises along the way, I'm sure. Lots of surprises along the way. There's nothing linear, is there? <laughs> no, not when it comes to genealogy. <laughs> but, what, but as it comes to Charleston, how do we tell that history? So, in terms of Charleston specifically? Yeah. Um, it's a complex, complicated story. There, there are many parts of it that are untold. That's, that's part of what we do at the museum is finding and sharing those untold African-American stories, family stories that we find ourselves or that people in the Charleston area share with us. The good thing about Charleston, it didn't lose any of its records during the Civil War. So yeah, lucky. So it was very lucky because you would have thought on the coast during the, revolution, during the Civil War at least that if anyone was going to get attacked... It would have been Charleston. I mean, especially given the whole Fort Sumter thing, um, you would have thought that that would have been a little bit of a reprisal, but very, very fortunate that none of the records got destroyed. And what most people don't know, the wealthier planters who lived in other counties like Georgetown and Barclay, um, principally, while they had plantations outside of Charleston, they lived in Charleston. They did their legal business in Charleston. So those records were preserved as well. Yeah. So Georgetown County, which lost all of its records, while that's bad, um, in a way, because a lot of those planters filed their papers here in Charleston, they still exist. And of course, when you think about it, you're still in the enviable position, I would hope, for oral history. Yes, absolutely. And that's integral. What I'm learning about the the Gullah Geechee community is they've really encapsulated their their history and their culture and their tradition, both in terms of their their faith and their culture traditions, the the things that they do, the fact that they still make sweet grass baskets, kind of a a form that they adapted from their ancestors adapted from Africa. The fact that you can go to the market in downtown Charleston and see exquisitely made sweetgrass baskets and, and whatnot. It's amazing. That that continuity is wonderful. And since this is an ongoing project, as you dig deeper and deeper and deeper, what's been your biggest surprise? The cultural continuity, again, specifically with the Gullah Geechee. And by that, I mean the, how much of their the Africanness they retained. To give you an example, my mother's maternal ancestry comes from a different part of South Carolina. It's called the Old 96 District, and that's Edgefield, 
Abbeville, Newberry, kind of up in Greenwood, McCormick counties. The, the culture there, because the enslavement culture was different, the African-American culture is slightly different. It's much more mixed in with, with Europeanness, with, with uh, Caucasian Europeanness. The Gullah culture, as I'm learning more about it and experiencing it firsthand, is, again, very different. They did retain a lot of their kind of African cultures and traditions that were brought over. And they stayed. And they stayed. That's the key. Oh, actually, even more interesting than that, because we've had the pleasure of interviewing a few centenarians. There were a lot of people who left John's Island and James Island, which is just off, just outside of Charleston. They're part of Charleston County, but physically separate. They left during the Great Migration. So the 1930s and the 1940s, part of that big pulse of African-Americans leaving the South. They went to places like New Jersey and New York, and they made their money. And when they got older, they decided they didn't want to stay up there. They came back. And, and I, the, I find and, that fascinating. And the story continues. We're talking to Brian Sheffy, the director of the Center for Family History at the International African American Museum here in Charleston. Brian, thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, absolute pleasure. And the website is theiaamuseum.org right here in Charleston. Please come visit. Back with more from Charleston and the Hotel Bennett right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And welcome back to Ion Travel for this third weekend in February. Peter Greenberg here with you from the Hotel Bennett in Charleston, South Carolina. Of course, you can always reach out to me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. A couple things I want to talk to you about. And, uh, you know, I said earlier in the show how much I love the Charleston Airport, and I really do. It's a manageable, lovely airport. Uh, but everybody wants to know, you know, who's the busiest airport in America? Who's the busiest airport in the world? Well, not too far from here, of course. It's Atlanta. It keeps going, you know, bigger and bigger. Uh, but Atlanta also comes in disappointing number 20 when it comes to on-time performance. Uh, keep in mind about that. And, of course, since Charleston's not a hub, and you're depending on certain flights from Delta coming out of Atlanta, be aware of that. But you have a lot of other airlines that are flying into Charleston now. I mentioned it earlier. Breeze is one of them. And uh, they can get you where you need to go. And they can also get you right back to Charleston. But speaking of airports, which airport has the busiest runways in America between the hours of 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. every single day? Would you say JFK, LAX, O'Hare? I mentioned Atlanta. The answer is none of the above. The busiest airport in the world, you might say, between the hours of 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. is not too far from here. It's Memphis, Tennessee. They're using three runways at that airport, landing planes every 40 to 70 seconds. Think about that. That's like watching you know, night operations on an aircraft carrier. And why is that? Very simple. Because Memphis isn't a big hub for the airlines, but it is the big hub for FedEx. Okay, little known fact. I just thought I'd share that with you. 
And now this is sort of serious. You know, when something goes wrong with your airline ticket or your flight or your bags, who do you call? In many cases, the airlines push you, steer you, direct you to go online. God forbid you should talk to a human being. And as a result of that, there are a growing number of scammers out there now posing as airlines on social media to help you with your problems. And they're using like-sounding names and websites like American Airways as opposed to American Airlines. And the scammers will always offer to help and then they'll get enough personal information from you that someone might legitimately need to rebook their flight or solve a problem, but now they have that information, including your credit card numbers, maybe your passport, other government-issued IDs, your social security number, the three-digit security code on your credit card if there's a payment involved. You know, either way, that's what they do. Now, the one word of advice here from me, and even though it might take longer, is call the airline on their published toll-free numbers only. And only that airline will have your existing reservation number, right, that six-digit or six-digit letter code called a PNR, that stands for Passenger Name Record, so that they can help you out. Now, I know what you're thinking. If I call the airline's 800 number, I'll be put on hold for 85 years. And you want to know something? You will. So here's the way around that. I've talked about it before. Don't call the airline's 800 number in this country. Call the airline's 800 number in another country, Spain, you know, or London, or Thailand. I mean, they're open 24-7, and what they're seeing on their screens is what the res agents are seeing at the headquarters of Delta in Atlanta or American in Dallas or, you know, United in Chicago. And that way, you've mitigated the opportunity for you to become a victim of a fraud. And you won't be on hold that long, okay? But anybody online who says, I'm going to solve your problem, forget it. Now, having said that, and this is, this is where it gets to serious stuff, is we all know that airline food is an oxymoron. But what about customer service? Is that now reaching oxymoron status? Consider this. American Airlines just laid off 656 frontline customer service agents in Dallas and Phoenix. And then they issued a press release, get this, claiming that the employee cuts were designed to better serve passengers. Are you kidding me? And this comes at a time when Americans actually be serving more passengers in 2024 than they've ever done and with a smaller customer service team. All right, let's do the math, right? Now, America, and I love this, is now calling that customer service team something else. The new name, the customer success team which could mean the term customer success may become another oxymoron as well. Now, the real danger here is if American succeeds with all those layoffs in customer service, what's to prevent United and Delta from doing the same thing? And the answer is nothing. So just understand that online tools to help you solve a problem uh, and more often than not can't do it. They can't answer your questions. They can't have a conversation with you. Uh, you know, anytime I see a kiosk at an airport, I run. This is where we are now. And uh, the accountants have taken over the asylum. And when that happens, we all get crazy. So let me know what happens, especially if you're an American Airlines passenger in the days and weeks, the months ahead, as to whether or not your problems actually got solved by the customer success team. 
That music means we're out of time for this hour, but stick around, everybody. We've got a whole lot more coming from the Hotel Bennett right here in Charleston, South Carolina, as Ion Travel returns right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg back with you. Welcome back to Ion Travel for the third weekend in February 2024. If you're just joining us, I hope you're having a great time wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 32 degrees, 46 minutes north, 79 degrees, 55 minutes west. We are at the Hotel Bennett in Charleston, South Carolina. If you've been listening to the show, then you know what a special hotel this is. It took 10 years to design and build it and, uh, and do the touches that they did. It's really a love letter from a local boy, Michael Bennett, uh, to the city where he grew up and to honor his family. Uh, they've got a great chef here, Edgar Cano, who's going to come on the show a little bit later. Uh, great restaurant called Gabrielle. And this you don't find every day, uh, the patisserie. Uh, their chef just received a, a James Beard nomination. And you know what that means if they're in a patisserie. It's a six-letter word, butter, B-U-T-T-E-R. And the food is incredible. But now let's talk about some other things in the news. Now, you may remember not too long ago, uh, Delta Airlines actually announced a game changer in passenger service. You don't hear me yell and scream in a positive way about this all the time, but in this case, Delta deserved the accolades. They actually offered and still do free Wi-Fi on every one of its planes to all of its passengers. How cool is that, right? I mean, how much have we been overspending for years? And they've got the bandwidth on board and the strength of it to allow people to use it all at the same time. No, we're not talking about gamers, and we're not talking about video Zoom calls. We're talking about basic email and websites. It's a great idea. Okay, that's cool. Now, remember, JetBlue has had free Wi-Fi for years, but now I've got some good news for everybody else. Hawaiian Airlines, which I might I must say never really excelled, at least in my book, in great passenger service, although they do own the Hawaiian routes. They've just announced they've signed a deal with Starlink. That's right. And their 5,000-plus low-orbit satellites, and they're now beginning to introduce free Wi-Fi to passengers, which is great when you consider, you know, Hawaiian Airlines flight. They go way out in the South Pacific. They fly L.A. and San Francisco and many other, Las Vegas to Hawaii. It's over water. And they fly a 10-hour flight every day from New York to Honolulu. And now they're going to have free Wi-Fi on the plane, and Starlink really works. Now, at the same time, it ain't free yet on American, Southwest, and United. But you know what? They're going to have to do something soon because the needle moved. I saw it move when Delta announced free Wi-Fi. A lot of people said, okay, that's the airline I'm going to fly. So we love competition. Come on, American, United, and Southwest. Get in the game. Free Wi-Fi. So it's no different than Wi-Fi at hotels. You know, it used to be $17 a day, $20 a day. Now it's all free. That's the way it should be. All right, moving along. Uh, now, if uh, <laughs> speaking of things that used to be free, uh, they're not now. 
It's mobile phone charges. It's the sticker shock you get when you come back from a, from an overseas trip and you see these phone bills that are hundreds or thousands of dollars. And it's not just for your phone calls. The trick is they get you for the data, the texting, or, or anything else you're doing, right? Are you streaming? Are you watching Netflix? Well, you're going to pay for it. Now, most people don't know about that till they get home, and there's your sticker shock. Now, sometimes you can switch out SIM cards whenever you land, and that's basically for phone calls. But WhatsApp has really helped a lot there. You're not going to get killed on that. But what you really need to know about is before you ever leave home, you need to check with your provider to find out what kind of data plan and phone plan they have for overseas. Now, this can range from a $10 a day pass from AT&T or a travel pass from Verizon or T-Mobile service, which now includes about international coverage at no extra cost in more than 215 destinations around the world. So there are options, but you have to check before you ever get home. Or you'll return saying, I did what? I called who? What's crazy? And uh, that's, the, that's the crazy part. Now, two fun stories of the week. Let's talk about the parrots. The parrots at the Lincolnshire like Animal Park in the UK. Apparently, there are a couple of these parrots who are sitting together in their cage that, that people could clearly see and they could clearly hear. And as people walked by, the parrots would gang up on them and insult them. They'd curse them. They'd, do, uh, they'd say dirty words. And then they'd laugh or cackle, as parrots do, I suppose. Well, they finally had to mo- remove the parrots. <laughs> I just love it. It's parrots' revenge at a zoo. All right. And then the other one that uh, got my attention. And look, it's bad enough that many airlines are adding more seats to coach. We've all experienced that, right? Uh And those seats that they are installing are getting more cramped. They're either narrower or the pitch is being reduced. That's the distance between the seat in front of you and your neck, otherwise known as to where your knees will be placed, simply because there's just such a little room there. Well, one airline may just be adding insult to injury. Finnair, out of its Helsinki base, is now announced that they're weighing passengers, not just their luggage, the passengers themselves. And Finnair claims that these weigh-ins are voluntary and they're anonymous. So why are they doing it? Well, they claim they're using the scales to make sure they can set the proper weight loads for passengers and the weight loads for bags, the weight loads for fuel and cargo prior to takeoff. I get that. You have to have proper weight and balance or it's a safety issue. But why are they doing it now? Well, what Finnair has has discovered is that passengers along with their clothing, tend to be heavier in winter. And what else are they doing? They're not just going to weigh you. They're also going to weigh your carry-on bags as well. Now, for what it's worth, and the airline made it very clear about this, Finnair promises that the only person who's going to know about your weight is the ticket counter agent. So the good news is, that's right, you can stay in denial. But it's still a little bit you know, it's still a little bit intimidating before they, you know, it's like, all right, next, <laughs> next. And let's hope they don't yell out the number. That would be very, very insulting. Okay. So, <laughs> but you got to laugh. Now, by the way, other airlines have tried this before. And it, and it was met with huge pushback uh, and uh, didn't last long. I, I suspect 
This will not last long either. Nothing will surprise me about that. Okay. And now, finally, I mean, look, the good news is airfares are coming down. They're coming down domestically. The good news is they will come down internationally no matter what the airlines are saying about a robust summer season that they're all predicting. Remember, it's an election year. People tend to, to travel less during an election year, especially if they're concerned about the candidates on either party. And I think people are going to hold back and wait to see who gets elected in November before they really go gung-ho on their next big travel plans, which means that's going to slide to 2025. Translation, if you do want to travel, it will slowly but surely become, relatively speaking, a buyer's market, not just for international flights, but for domestic flights as well. So stick around on that one, and we'll be reporting that in the days and weeks to come. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Lisa Lutoff Perlo, the author of Making Waves. And believe me, she does. Back with more of Eye on Travel from the Hotel Bennett in Charleston, South Carolina, right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg back with you as we continue Eye on Travel from the Hotel Bennett here in Charleston, South Carolina. Of course, you can always reach out to me at any time. Just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. My next guest is someone who I've known for a long time, but of course, I watched her rise to run one of the great cruise lines in the country, in the world, Celebrity Cruise Lines. She's now written a book. Great title. It's called Making Waves, How Appropriate, A Woman's Rise to the Top Using Smarts, Heart, and Courage, and her name is Lisa lutoff Perlo. Nice to talk to you again, Lisa. Peter, it is always my pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Well, listen, you know, you and I have been on ships together. I've watched you build that cruise line into what it is today. But let's be honest, at the time you did it, how many female CEOs were there of cruise lines? Yeah, me. That's me. (laughs) And that was wonderful um, and special. And I always said when I was appointed to that role, I know I'm the first, but I don't want to be the last. And uh, and I haven't been, and that's wonderful. So that was back in 2014. Exactly. So, I mean, we all talk about the glass ceiling. We all talk about you know, a male-dominated industry, which the cruise industry was when you think about leadership. So how difficult was it for you, first of all, to get to that point? And then, of course, how difficult was you to do your job? Well, there are two. I think there are probably two different answers to that question. I never felt in my career, and it will be 39 years. I am, I am currently, it's 2024. I am in my 39th year in the company. And I never really uh, felt that my gender in any way held me back from any of the positions that I've held in the company. And they are varied and progressive and all, I learned so much. It was a great, a great journey and a great career. And I never felt like my promotions were uh, ever at risk because of my gender. That was that was never uh, the situation. I think for me, it probably took 30 years. It probably took that long for a woman just because there weren't a lot of women that were in different roles within our industry where they were preparing themselves or interested in ascending into one of these roles. So I think a lot of it 
had to do with timing. In terms of some of the positions I held, you know, my CEO position, I was the first woman, but that was the third position I had where I was the first woman. And, you know, I had differing um, experiences with fitting in or being welcomed or assimilating into a really male-dominated culture every time I went into big operational roles. But I learned how to navigate my way through, pardon the pun, and, uh, and be successful in spite of some of the barriers that I might have experienced based on being a woman. Then what would you say was your biggest challenge then uh, to, to do it? Well, you know, I grew up or came up through sales and marketing, 21 years in sales and marketing. And there are a lot of women in sales and marketing and in leadership roles in sales and marketing. And my biggest barrier was that I was a woman taking over uh, functions, operational functions that were pretty much all men. It's not a hundred percent, very close. And I just, I think I was met with skepticism because I wasn't, I didn't come from operations. I hadn't worked on ships. I was never a captain. I was never a hotel director. So these men were all looking at me thinking, why did she get the job to be my boss? Um, and why was she brought in from swooped in from sales and marketing to be my boss and put into these functions that she has no subject matter expertise? And so, you know, there was a lot of skepticism. Um, I, you know, I made a lot of cultural changes along the way and change is always difficult for people. So those were the, I would say those were the biggest obstacles, uh, where I faced them as I was advancing and going into very male-dominated parts of our company. Speaking of male domination, you know, it's one thing to say that you were the first woman president and CEO of a cruise line. Then you did something else. You, you elevated a woman to be the first captain of a cruise line. And of course, we're, we're speaking about someone who we've had on our show many, many times. We've done television pieces on her. She's basically the, the face of the, of, the, of, the, of the cruise line now, and that's Captain Kate. Captain Kate McHugh. And, you know, I always look at my career um, as a wonderful journey where I have had the opportunity to meet some such wonderful people along the way, like yourself, really, where you've been so gracious to me. And we've had so many interactions throughout the years in this business and in this beautiful industry. And one of my other coincidences was meeting Captain Kate McHugh, and she was a staff captain at Royal Caribbean when I was running Hotel and Marine at Royal Caribbean back from 2012 to 2014. Chance encounter. She happened to come to a hotel director and captain's conference, even though at the time she wasn't a captain. It was a serendipitous moment for both of us. And when I was appointed to president and CEO of Celebrity as a woman, I decided a woman captain at Celebrity was long overdue. So I asked her to go on that wild ride and great journey with me. And she said, hell yes. So she was the first woman captain for Celebrity, but she was the first and still only American woman to be the captain of a mega cruise ship. So uh, and she's just had many firsts. She was the first to take a ship out of the yard with Celebrity Beyond out of the French shipyard. So she's, and she's a rock star. Everyone loves Captain Kate McHugh. So I look at that, back at that fondly and what a great opportunity for her and what a great opportunity for me. And then you guys went one step further than that because you guys became the first cruise line that I can think of where the entire bridge staff, the, all the officers 
It was an all-female officer crew. Oh, yes. March 8th, 2020, our history-making, barrier-breaking cruise on Celebrity Edge, where 100% of the bridge was manned by women, and every leader across the entire operation, whether it was hotel or marine, was a woman. And that's because um, we worked as a team, not just me, a lot of the amazing men that I worked with as well, worked really hard to improve the gender balance on our ships because, again, a very male-dominated environment. When I came to Celebrity, 3% of women um, on the bridge, uh, 3% of the bridge crew were women. When I stepped down in April of 2023, 33% of the crew on bridges were women. And in the maritime industry, only 2% um, of the crew on uh, in maritime are women. So we made tremendous uh, progress in gender balance, and uh, we're all very proud of that as well. And of course, you know, that happened literally a week before the pandemic. Oh my gosh, yes. The week before the pandemic, that was uh, March 8th. We shut down on March 15th, voluntary shutdown. So when the that cruise ended, that's when we shut down. So I talk about this in the book. It's my opening chapter. You know, from you go from your highest high in your career, Celebrity Edge, transformative ship for the industry, transformative ship for celebrity, manned with a 100% women bridge and all women leaders across the operation. Our guests were our crew were ecstatic. I was standing in the Grand Plaza on March 11th. I got off the ship on March, tw- you know, we were celebrating in the Grand Plaza on March 11th. I got off the ship on March 12th, and then uh, I went from the highest of highs, certainly as a company. And of course, you know, the cruise ship industry has made a rapid transformation in the post-pandemic years in terms of sustainability, in terms of, of responsibility, and of course, in terms of the way you actually do business. Yeah, no, I mean, we the industry uh, came out of COVID in a wonderful way. Uh, consumers are engaging in cruising again, just like they did pre-pandemic. They're, you know, the industry continued to make great strides, even though we were shut down. Um, and it's really nice to see that it has rebounded so beautifully. Of course, you know, now we are, you know, in starting a new year, 2024. I remember, as you do, Lisa, if you go back to the days of the love boat, there might have been seven ports of call in the cruise industry. I, I, I can name them. Mm-hmm. Here they go. Uh, Nassau, Nassau, <laughs> Nassau, <laughs> Nassau, uh, Nassau, and Bermuda. I think that's it. Uh, <laughs> okay, that was it. Huh? That was it. And now, how many ports mm-hmm. of call? Oh, my goodness, probably a 1,000 uh, industry-wide, but at Celebrity, there are over 300. So, uh, yeah, the world has, uh, you know, the, the not only has the industry expanded significantly, all the brands, all the cruise lines, but so have the destinations that we've been going in. There are ships of so many sizes, and, you know, I've always said as I was selling cruising, which I've been doing for 39 years, regardless of the position I was in, there's no better way to see the world than by sea. And so I think there's just such a beautiful romance about, you know, uh, coming in and out of a port via the sea versus other ways. And the world is just, you know, accessible by sea. Over 70% of the planet is, is water. So it's just been a beautiful expansion that has opened up the world, which is always a wonderful thing because that's what makes us better human beings. Lisa Lutra Furlow, the author of Making Waves, 
A Woman's Rise to the Top Using Smarts, Heart, and Courage. Lisa, always a pleasure, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Peter, and thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it, my friend. You got it. Back with more from Charleston right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com, and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg, back with you from the Hotel Bennett here in Charleston, South Carolina, as Ion Travel continues. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Here's an email from Cecilia who said, uh, I was listening to the program about aging successfully, blue zones, and and uh, and programs. She said, can you please give me the information on the author who did the book? I can. His name is Chip Conley, and he wrote the book Learning to Love Midlife. But what he really is talking about in this book, we had an extended conversation on, on the show. It's also on our podcast, by the way, on becoming a modern elder, of staying curious, and the whole concept of longevity travel. Not wellness travel, not, you know, spa travel, something that's a little bit different and maybe even a little deeper, longevity travel. So if you didn't catch the show when he was on it, that's okay. It's on our podcast. So check out the Eye on Travel podcast and you'll hear my extended conversation with, uh, with Chip Conley. Now, every year, The Economist magazine publishes their list of the most expensive cities in the world. Now, how do they use the metrics for this? Well, they compare the cost of living in 172 different cities. They look at inflation. They look at local taxes. And, of course, currency exchange rates as it relates to, you know, the, the strength or weakness of their, own, of their own dollars or euros or pounds or liras. Now, topping the list this year are two cities. They're tied for being the most expensive. Zurich and Singapore. No real surprises there. I mean, after all, Singapore has topped the list for more than a decade. Okay, so what are the other pricey cities? Another Swiss city, Geneva, tied with New York, followed by Hong Kong, Los Angeles, and Paris. And rounding out the list, Tel Aviv, Copenhagen, and San Francisco. Okay, not bad. However, if you really want to talk about expensive cities, get ready for this summer. And here's where it gets interesting. Uh, A couple of weeks ago on this show, I cautioned that a trip to Paris this summer was going to be a whole lot more expensive since it coincides with the Olympic Games. Now, at the time, I reported that airfares, hotel rates, and even a ride on the Paris Metro were going to be much more. And standing in that long line at the Louvre was also going to cost you more. Well, I can now report that my original estimates were a little low. At this point, most of the Olympic events, the ones that matter, are officially sold out. And there are a couple of tickets still left, but you got to be prepared to fork over nearly $3,000 each. Want to rent a small apartment instead of a pricey hotel room? Sounds like a good option. Well, those apartments that used to rent for $300 a night 
They're now starting at more than 1,000 euros a night. And airfares from U.S. to Paris, well, remember what I said last week and the week before and the week before that? Don't fly to Paris. Fly to London, then take the train to Paris. It'll be cheaper. And then don't take the train back to London to fly home. Fly home from Paris. And you won't get stuck with those draconian taxes that they charge anybody who leaves from any UK airport on an overseas trip. That's my suggestion on that. Now, there are still some tickets around that are relatively, emphasis on the word relatively inexpensive, from the U.S. to Paris. Uh, and you'll find them at about $1,100, sometimes $1,200. But remember, that's just the opening fare. Those are the low-cost carriers that will charge you for your bags and for just about everything else. So do the smart thing like I do. Watch it on television and go after that in September to Paris. That's the magic month in the Mediterranean. That's the magic month in Paris. Uh, everything's open. The weather's delightful. No lines, no crowds, and you get to own it. That's my suggestion. I mean, and what usually happens with the Olympic Games, and it's it always happens every four years. I'm assuming it's every four years for the Winter Games as well. Here's what happens. A city goes out there and bids for the Olympics, and then the, God help them, they get it. And now they start building on a massive scale, new hotel rooms. Uh, they, they change their fleet of taxis. They change their, their metropolitan transit system. They pour in billions of dollars for an event that lasts about two and a half weeks. It's nuts. And then, of course, everybody shows up, and it's great to be there, and people get really high rates for everything they're going to do. And then the games are over. And then they have all these hotel rooms to fill. Their rental car fleets are sitting idle. So September in Paris this year might be great for a number of reasons otherwise known as a great bargain. Remember, law of supply and demand. You want the supply curve to be up and the demand curve to be low, and that way you got a chance to benefit in a buyer's market. You go in July, you get no sympathy from me. By the way, coming up, remember I said earlier, the Hotel Bennett is unusual because their patisserie, right, just got a James Beard nomination, the chef there, and their chef for Gabrielle, what a cool guy, Mr. Ed Cano. Talk about using local ingredients and combining it with an inventive menu. That's what he's done, and believe me, it works. He'll be coming on board, too, when we come back. So stick around. I on travel from, I can call it the legendary Hotel Bennett, because not only of, where, of what it is, but where it's located, right here in Charleston, South Carolina. I on travel, coming back from Charleston, with me, Peter Greenberg, right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, Back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg back with you again as Eye on Travel continues from the Hotel Bennett here in Charleston, South Carolina. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. My next guest has an amazing pedigree. Let me just start out with something that's going to be confusing to everybody. 
born in Mexico City to a Japanese household, and now he's in Charleston. Yes, and I speak German. Of course you do. That's Edgar Cato, the executive chef here at the Hotel Bell. So you're trilingual. Uh, Fortlingual. I speak uh, English, Spanish, German, and French. Well, excuse me, or (laughs) excusez-moi. Chef, when you come to a hotel like this, you're bringing your expertise from, as you and I know, uh, the Four Seasons Hotel in Mexico City. So you're bringing the Mexican cuisine, right? And all the other places where you've worked, this is an amalgamation of style and culture. Yes, it's, uh, Charleston has been an amazing playground. Uh, some of the dishes that we were able to place in the exclusive restaurant, Gabriel, it's, for example, a little bit of my heritage of all my travels. You'll see a little bit of Asian, a little bit of Japanese, some dim sum when I worked in Singapore, but definitely my soul is still Mexican and always will be, so you need to try my salsas. But so far on the menu, there's no dim sum schnitzel. Uh, not yet, oh, but God. I'll that'll be I'll write down for the next menu. <laughs> so when you make, you know, one of the things I always find with so many of the chefs, as creative as they are, sometimes they can overdo it because you're you're loading it down with so many different. So you're sort of burying, you know, the the the. the are you keeping it simple? Yes, my philosophy has always been. Um, Less is more. So in Japanese cuisine, you will have less ingredients but higher quality, so you can appreciate it much better. And uh, the last thing that we want is to create a fusion cuisine that it's more confusion than fusion. Well said. Although there's a there's a restaurant I go to in Paris that's Asian French fusion, and with a Japanese chef, unbelievable because he's figured out what you know. Less is more, right? You don't so you don't try to bury the, the flavors. With other flavors. Yes, like with the, with the opportunity we had here with the great product, uh, everything from uh, fresh uh, products from the John Island or even the shrimp that it's just caught right outside the, the harbor. It's, uh, you don't need anything to hide it. The only thing that you need is the right ingredient to enhance it. So your sourcing is not a problem? Uh, thank God, not... It's been really, really helpful to just go around in the markets, in the farmer's markets on the weekend, or talk to concierge Bellman, the local people. And we've been able to find an amazing array of products, all the way from quail, from a farm in Colombia, Columbus, sorry, and uh, shrimp from uh, Tarvin Seafood here in uh, Charleston Bay. And, for example, a lot of uh, micro farms in John's Island that we use uh, their product. And you're seeing a lot more micro farms bouncing up. I think that's a trend that uh, we, the chefs, should uh, support a little bit more. Like uh, We've always been believers of uh, supporting the community and having a collaboration with uh, producers and farmers around the area where we work. But uh, I think now it's time to even bring it up a notch a little bit more. So when you bring it up a notch a little bit more, is there a change in, in your guests' palate? Is there something that they're asking for now that they never asked for before? Well, that's the challenge of a chef, and that's what we love. Because when we have a challenge like that, we can become more creative without being uh, over over uh, bearing or over how can I say like too many layers of flavors will harm 
the dish. But the creativity when we do a brainstorm, especially in the kitchen, it's like we have people from so many ethnicities, and when we put all those brains together, we have an amazing thing, dish. Like we just had this uh, shrimp bucket that we just put in the menu for lunch, and uh, it's a collaboration of three or four of my team members, and uh, it's so good. Okay, you call it a shrimp bucket? No, no, a shrimp bucket. A burger. a burger, yes. Okay, so okay, when we know, okay, it, wait, it's a it's a burger or shrimp. Yes. On a bun. Yes. And what kind of sauce? Uh, this one has a saffron lemon aioli, so it's a, a little bit of lemon zest, lemon juice, and saffron to enhance the flavor and the color. So you have the acidity that it's a perfect match with the Asian flavors of the sweat or stirred fry uh, scallions and peppers and a bit of garlic mixed with the raw shrimp from uh, here from Charleston Bay and uh, it's just an amazing we have a collaboration with some of the local bakeries and they make their buns with a little bit of sesame just the right amount of sesame but lots of <laughs> butter that's the way to win a brioche and not too spicy not too spicy that's why we have the sauces on the side and uh, that's something you're that my kind of chef have. sauce on the side oh yes Unbelievable. We're talking to Edgar Connell, the executive chef here at the Hotel Bennett. When we come back, we're going to talk some menu psychology and some dishes that were supposed to be successful but weren't and some other dishes that nobody thought would work that are. Back with more right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you as we continue from the Hotel Bennett here in Charleston. And of course, you know how to reach me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com. I won't even complete the sentence. You know how to find me and you will. And we'll answer those questions. We've been talking to Edgar Cano, the executive chef here, the Quattrolingo <laughs> executive chef at the Hotel Bennett. I always ask chefs this question, so I'm going to ask you. But before we get into that, let's talk about menu psychology. Because menu psychology is changing, right? When you open up a two-page menu, when you have left and the right, you know, it's where you place the items, not how you price them. Where you place them, that will uh, people figure out what they want to order. Is there one place you want to put something on, on the menu better than any other place? Like, for example, some, uh, we call that uh, menu mapping. And something that has worked is like everybody will look at the first page on the left on the top. And then a lot of people will also look in the middle of the right one. But in order to make sure that the other items don't get lost, you can put them in a box, which is what we do sometimes. One of the main items that we're so proud to have, it's a curated uh, Royal Ocetra, a Hotel Bennett branded caviar. And we serve that in Camellias, the Champagne Bar. So that's the first thing that before you even start your dinner, you should have some caviar. And the chicken fingers and the mac and cheese, they're buried somewhere. Last page, definitely. <laughs> Kids mainly for EDR. Although I must tell you that I'm my judgment on a, on a restaurant, you're going to laugh at me, chef. 
is if they can make a great grilled cheese on rye with grilled onions. If they can do that, I'm eating at that restaurant. You will make fun of that, but for for example, for chefs when we're hiring, one of the, the things that I asked for them to do in the stash, which is their cooking test, is a simple pasta dish. And that's when you see that the pasta is properly cooked, the sauce has the right consistency, and that they do have the basics. Because if you don't have the basics, you cannot do anything. It's like building a house. The foundations, which is the basic cuisine, will be strong enough to support as many floors as you want to put in and that's what we're aiming at so when you do a test for a new chef they've got to make a basic pasta anything else well not that you're gonna give away my secret it's gonna be a simple simple dish as could be a pasta could be something as easy as uh, some over easy eggs i want to see their cooking skills but definitely something that it's somebody really mess up over easy eggs you have no idea (laughs) You have no idea. Sometimes we were like, okay, let's get a bigger, bigger uh, mat for the floor because they're not going to land on the pan when they flip them. So, But the, the idea is to make sure that they have the basics, a very strong foundation, and then we expose them to a challenge to make a dish that could be just a filet. Uh, of uh, tenderloin but it has to be something that i've never seen before that's the challenge that i throw at them and uh, you will be surprised we have it on crude we have it covered in a cucumber so we have it all the way but it has to make sense now what about a dish that you thought everybody was going to like and nobody ordered it right now and we just launched it about uh, uh, three weeks is the shrimp burger so we run this dish for restaurant week and we got great feedback. So it's like, okay, let's put it in. And right now it's not picking up, but it will be definitely, and I hope so, I'm betting on that one, one of the most successful ones for lunch. So right now if I go to one of your restaurants for lunch, I say, what's for lunch? They're going to be pushing that shrimp burger. Oh, yeah, and if they, <laughs> do, if, if they don't, let me know. I'll give it for you for free. <laughs> All right, so then let's flip the cards. What about a dish that you think... Do I really have to put this on the menu? And everybody wants it. Well, I mean, I always try to utilize my product in the whole menu so that there's zero waste. Zero waste will mean in, uh, being profitable, but the most important, not to filled or lens with uh, things that or product that can be used. So, for example, we have a BMF uh, 79 Wagyu uh, for breakfast, which is a Tons medallion, but... I have maybe one ounce, one and a half ounce medallions that will be not making the cut for the perfect exponent. So what we do is we turn them into a lettuce wrap. Just imagine you're in Thailand and then you're going to have a lettuce wrap, but instead of shrimp or instead of lumpia, you're going to have perfectly seared wagyu with a little bit of sea salt and then a sake hoisin. And I was like, okay, well, well, let's see how it goes. Now I have to buy their tenderloin just for that dish. Because it's flying off the shelf. It's flying off the window, yes. But you know what? This is my secret, chef. With enough hoisin, anything works. (laughs) And if you add sake, it flies. (laughs) I love that. But it's true, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, hoisin has the perfect sweetness, the perfect savory, so to say, that it can match chicken, seafood, uh, you name it. And uh, what we did with the with the wraps was to create two sauces. One, a little milder that I learned to put it all on the side, not on the dish, because people were complaining that it was too spicy. And then someone said, Chef, you're Mexican. 
you're doing a tourist salsa. Oh, that really hit my ego. So what I did was I brought a salsa that I did in one of my previous properties. and uh, That would set the place on fire. Uh, everything on fire. Your mouth, <laughs> your neighbor, everything will be on fire. So it's... Uh, it's I'll put on the side. Obviously, obviously. And uh, the story was that I was preparing it. I had to leave the kitchen. I came back and then I saw one of my cooks red as a tomato, just cursing. Who did this salsa? The devil. And I was like, I was looking for a name. Now I got it. So it's the devil salsa or salsa del diablo. Edgar Connell, the executive chef right here at the Hotel Bennett. I'll be looking for that on the side. Thank you so much for joining us. That means we're out of time for the entire show. Lots of people to thank. Amanda Morris, our producer. Of course, Jeff Ryder doing the boards back in Connecticut. Matt Owen and the entire staff here at the Hotel Bennett in Charleston. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week from a different location somewhere around the world. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.